Now for our second message today, it'd be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Jesus and the Broken. Thank you, Sean. Good afternoon. It's wonderful, as it always is, to see everyone on this Sabbath day, first Sabbath of November 2018. Very windy. Uh, but it's good. It's good. It feels good out there. The, the fall has seemed to have set in, and uh, I'm really, if you're like me, I'm really enjoying this weather. Uh, as you can see, and as Sean pointed out, the title of this message today is Jesus and the Broken. And we're going to get into some things today, and I think that we, I could have titled this many different things. I went back and forth. Uh, but... To start off today, I just want to kind of comment on a few things that as I was putting this message together, I was thinking about. And that is, and I think most of the speakers here could maybe understand where I'm coming from. But there is a challenge sometimes when we come up with a message to stay relevant. Now, we know that the Word of God in which that's what we're trying to do when we come up and give a message. We're trying to preach the Word of God. We know that the Word of God is universally relevant. Its principles are everlasting. They're eternal. Uh, but still, sometimes it's difficult uh, to stay relevant in our presentation and the way that we present different topics and in different times. Because even though the Word of God is completely universal, the words, the precepts, transcend time throughout the ages, we know that different topics are sometimes more relevant than others. But there's also this other universal challenge. And the challenge is just with the church, the church of God as a whole, the church of God as it has come down through the ages. And in particular, I'm talking about the church of God today, just God's church staying relevant within the culture, and the society that we live in in the present. Way, the way the gospel's presented. Uh, the generations change. We know that people are different now that are young, that are the ages of 15, 16, 17, in their 30s. They're different than they were, these same individuals that were living in 1950. And so sometimes there's a great challenge when it comes to the presentation of the gospel, not because the gospel's faulty in any way, but because we are faulty. Nevertheless, I think that there is one in particular area that really resonated with me this last week. And I think that it's something that we haven't ignored. I'm not saying that. We as a church, I'm talking about Christianity as a whole. But I definitely think that it's a very relevant issue that the church, that Christianity, that we, members of Christ's body, really need to respond to and really need to take serious. And that is the issue of mental health. That is the issue of depression that, although has been around for years and years and years, there does seem to be this increase. I don't know if it's because of the media. I don't know if it's because 
we just see it more. But as I was thinking this week, and I just kind of give you a little insight to the way I go about preparing a message, one of the first things I think about is what do the people need to hear? Not what I want them to hear. What do, and I pray, God, what do you want your people to hear? And it's, very, it's a very subjective process. It's very interesting because in one way, when you prepare a message, you want to be objective. You want to be a vessel for the scriptures. But sometimes coming to that decision of what topic, what passages to actually talk about, sometimes can be very subjective. And so I usually think about it. Sometimes I'm in a series and I just, I already have the topic picked out for me. But one of the ways I look at God communicating with me, of course this is my little, my little bell and I think many of the speakers here would probably agree, is I wait until it feels right. And that might sound kind of strange. But I'm probably saying this for a lot of us. Many of us speakers have talked about where we began presenting or preparing, rather, a message. And we get in the middle of preparing it. And I think I've heard Steve talk about this, maybe Lawrence before. We're in the middle of preparing it, and then something just doesn't feel right. And we put it on the shelf and, and, and maybe later pick it up where it might be a little bit more pertinent. In other words, maybe we're being led to a different topic. Well, this week, the topic that I was led to was this issue that seems to be such a scourge in our society. You hear about it on the news constantly. You see it in, in, in other mediums and movies. There's a television show now that's all about depression and suicide. You just see this. It's just such an issue in our society. And, and I'm just going to be the first one to tell you. I'm not trained in anything when it comes to mental health. I have no psychological background or psych, psychology background. I'm not, you know, uh, I have no education. I have no training in mental health or anything at all. Nevertheless, I was moved this week to talk about this issue because... It's just something that's been weighing on my mind very heavily. I did some reading and some research, and many of you have probably heard of the statistics, the rise of suicide, the seeming rise of mental health, depression. Uh, we see the unfortunate aftermaths of things and events that have taken place because of this. We see things like shootings, mass shootings. Uh, we see things, obviously, that are horrific uh, events that take place just this past Saturday uh, at a synagogue. Uh, school shootings, of course, that they've been on, seemingly have been kind of on the rise. I don't know any, the statistics per se, but I do know that there was one statistic that really alarmed me. And this was an article that came out just a, a little while ago in, in June, and I was reading, and I cannot remember, and I apologize, but I could probably find it if you wanted to come to me after services. I can't remember where it came from, but it was a statistic from 2016 where suicide was rated as the second cause of death among people the ages of 15 to 34. That's an alarming statistic. And of course, people don't do this if there's not something going on. 
And so the title of my message today was because I was thinking about this issue and our Savior Jesus. Jesus and the broken. That's what Jesus came to. He came to the broken. And many of us, in a lot of ways, whether we were consciously aware of it or not, we were broken at one point. And so the scripture that I want to start out with starts out in Luke, the fourth chapter. And I just want to pick it up in context. So let's go to Luke 4. Luke 4. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. Just to give you a little context, Jesus had just ended being tempted by Satan the devil in this, in this gospel of Luke here. And if you were to read verse 14, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And in verse 16 we read, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Sorry, I got a little mixed up here. Verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And we'll stop there. And we'll just look and see what the situation is. Jesus is in Nazareth. Now we know Jesus, one of his titles is Jesus of Nazareth. This is his hometown. Jesus... As the passage tells us, this was his custom. Custom is an interesting word. It says that it was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This comes from the Greek ethos. You know, we get the word ethics kind of from this word as, as well. It was his habit, a manner of, of action that he had to go into the synagogue. So Jesus not only would have regularly, probably, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath in different places that he was at, but he also probably had a little bit of a familiarity here at this particular synagogue because this is where he was from. He was from Nazareth. And so some of these people in here probably were individuals that he had grown up maybe knowing. They saw him grow up as a child and onward. So Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And just a little note on synagogue in case we need a little refresher. A synagogue during this period of time was the quote-unquote, the, the church uh, of this time. Of course, we know that the church, ecclesia, that's the word in Greek, it's a reference in the New Testament to uh, the body of Christ, but also the gathering of individuals uh, who would come together for worship services. The word synagogue, synagogue, that Greek word has a very similar meaning and definition. And so during this period of time, what would take place is, is that we don't know exactly when the synagogue came about, like the invention of it. We know that it probably happened somewhere in the, what's called the intertestamental period, the period from the ending of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, because when the New Testament comes about, we see that there's this new invention, this new practice, people going to this thing or place that they call the synagogue. And so we don't know exactly how that came about, but what we do know is, is that there were several principles or practices that usually took place at these places. Sometimes they would have a liturgy that they would follow. Many of the synagogues, and if you don't know what a liturgy is, liturgy is like an order of service, a, a following of a particular order 
of how you would do some sort of service. Okay, Christian congregations, Christian denominations, some of them follow a liturgy, like on a three-year basis. Like, for example, uh, many Presbyterian churches follow, a, I think, a three-year liturgy. They follow uh, a scripture reading that's a three-year rotation. In this synagogue, in this time, in this period, most likely the liturgy was you would come in, and a man would stand up and would read the weekly Torah portion and also maybe read a portion of the prophets, the prophetic books. Sometimes there would be singing and things like that. It all depended upon when the actual synagogue practice or uh, service was taking place because they would change a little bit through history. But in verse 18, we just read that Jesus went up to speak. He was handed the scroll and he picks it up in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, and he also mixes in a little portion of Isaiah, the 58th chapter. Jesus says this, these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, that's the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. As I, as I mentioned, this passage in Isaiah comes from Isaiah the 61st chapter, verses 1 through 2. Or half of, he actually doesn't say the entire verse of verse 2. And we'll get to why he might not have done that in just a minute. Okay? So this section is very interesting. Because even though we're not going to look at the people's reaction in this message today, right after Jesus is done, he hands the scroll back to the synagogue attendant and says, I'm letting you know at this day these scriptures have been fulfilled. And of course the reaction was very mixed. Many of the people did not care for what he had to say there. But it's interesting that Jesus picked this passage. This passage to preach there in the synagogue on that day. And we'll get to a little bit about that in just a minute. Now, right here, Jesus says, as he later will go on to say, this, you know, he's referring to himself. He's reading. He's reading out of Isaiah. But he's also saying, I, me, I am fulfilling this. I am fulfilling this. Therefore, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Jesus by doing that, it's proclaiming five things that he is here to do in this particular point in time. Number one, proclaim the good news to the poor. The poor has a very interesting position within the Bible. Oftentimes, God, all throughout the scriptures, the poor is mentioned. Now, in these days, we know that many people probably were poor. Couldn't do it now, but most likely, by knowing other things of cultures around there, the majority of people or a vast amount of people probably would have been categorized in the actual, you know, poor socioeconomic status or category. People who were poor in this time oftentimes were mistreated. They were forgotten. They were despised. They weren't, you know, obviously they didn't get the things of life that many of the other people enjoyed, some of the, I guess you could say, the first century's so-called 
And this was a group of people that was vast. There was many people in this category. And Luke seems to emphasize this idea in his gospel. Many times we see Luke talk about the poor as an emphasis. It's also something that Jesus highlights in the Beatitudes. Remember Matthew, uh, the fifth chapter, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives all the different Beatitudes. And one of those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right there in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 3. The second thing that Jesus does and comes to proclaim in this passage is he comes to proclaim the liberty to the captives. Now this is interesting because we can take this in so many different ways if we take the context into consideration. When we think about the history in which Jesus is speaking to these people, their history was many of them, they probably weren't captive per se, like in jail. Some of them were. But some of them were people who would consider themselves captive because they were captive to the Romans. They were living in their own land, but under the auspices, the authority of the Roman Empire. And so, in one way, many of the people around Jesus could have taken this to be literal, physical captivity that Jesus has come. And of course, Jesus does, and we know the scriptures does tell us that the Messiah does come to deliver his people physically in the second coming. But there's also a spiritual captivity that we know the New Testament goes on to develop that becomes the heart of the gospel message. Spiritual captivity to sin. The word liberty is interesting because it's the actual Greek word Ephesus, which is translated remission three other times, and Luke referring to the remission of sins. So we know that this word, captives, is also something that's associated not just with the physical captivity that a person might be in, but also the spiritual captivity that they might be in when it comes to sin. The third thing that Jesus said that he came to do is proclaim sight to the blind. And we know that Jesus, oftentimes in his ministry, have many examples of him healing people. And in doing so, we also see that there's passages in the New Testament that tell us that people are spiritually blind. That's why they can't understand the truth. In fact, we know in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, we read that the world is blinded to the things of God. And it gets into the Spirit of God and how the Spirit of God is what enables us. But there's also something else that's interesting to think about. Because many people in Jesus' day, they were people that were learned. They were schooled when it came to the scriptures. And here they are living in this period of time where things were very different from what they read about in the books of Moses and the prophets. And many of them probably felt like they were kind of out there all alone. You know, there was real no leader anymore. They read about Moses. They read about Joshua. They read about all these biblical characters that led the people of God. Samuel. But here, they're probably thinking to themselves, there's no one to bring us the word of God anymore. You know, where's the prophet of God that tells us, that gives us a word from the Lord? 
Of course, we know they have the scriptures, but many of them probably felt like they were, in some ways, trying to go out blind in, in blindness. The fourth thing that Jesus sent, says that he has come to do, proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. Now, if you think about it, being blind, being captive, being poor, and by the way, it's not just poor physically, you know, socioeconomically, it's also poor in spirit, as Jesus talks about. You can be rich in the New Testament, in the, in the Bible, but still be spiritually poor. Proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. All three of those, in and of themselves, are a form of oppression. They're a form of oppression. And in these days, and as well as our days, people are oppressed by many different things. They're oppressed by sicknesses. They're oppressed by demonic forces, as we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus, right before this, or a little bit later, when we look at Mark, as we will, we'll see that Jesus is casting out demons. And they're also oppressed, of course, by sin. They're oppressed by sin. All the forms that we just read before this are forms of oppression in and of themselves. Let's just think about what people are dealing with today. We mentioned at the beginning of this message, Jesus in the broken. The broken have always been here. And today in this, this, this day and age, we seem to to see that the uh, materialism uh, or the materialization of what brokenness can do to people has really become apparent. There's people in this world that are oppressed by things that many of us can't understand, or maybe we can because we've been under that same form of, of oppression. I don't know what it's like to deal with mental illness. I don't know what it's like to have chronic depression. I know what it's like to be situationally sad, like many of us do. But people are dealing with different forms of oppression that sometimes we don't understand because we haven't experienced it, because maybe we don't see it. That's another thing that's a big kicker. It doesn't always show itself. It doesn't always give you warnings. We know that Jesus, though, he understands it. And what I'm going to get into today and what we're getting into is we're looking at this in a nutshell, seeing the theme of the New Testament that Jesus has a heart for those who are the downtrodden, for the broken, for the brokenhearted. The fifth thing that Jesus came to do was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. This is an obvious allusion to the year of Jubilee. If you were to do Brush up on some of your uh, Levitical uh, knowledge. Leviticus, the 25th chapter, is where we're presented with the stipulations, the law of the year of Jubilee. Israel was to count seven times seven years and come to the 49th year where they would blow the trumpet on the Day of Atonement at that 49th year to usher in the year of Jubilee for the 50th year. And so this year was the year of liberty. This 50th year was the year to release people from their debts, give back their possessions, and also to allow the land to rest as a sabbatical year. And we fast forward to the day of Jesus, where Jesus is here proclaiming what Isaiah proclaimed. He's proclaiming the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, that God is ushering in the dawn of a new age. 
where his favor, his grace, his mercifulness is going to be fully born and demonstrated through Jesus Christ. We know that God's always been merciful. He's always had grace. But the ultimate fulfillment of that and the demonstration of that is going to come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is using this, as Isaiah does as well, as the metaphor for salvation by proclaiming the time for deliverance, both physically as well as spiritually. Now, I want us to notice something. You don't really catch it if you don't understand the passage in which Jesus is quoting from, Isaiah, the 61st chapter. Because in Isaiah, the 61st chapter, when we look at verse 2, and we go back and we look at Luke, the 4th chapter, where Jesus is reading the scroll from Isaiah, what we notice is, is that Jesus stops and doesn't completely say everything that Isaiah, the 62 or 61st chapter, verse 2 says. If you were to read Isaiah, the 61st chapter, verse 2, this is what it says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. We know that that's a reference to what Jesus just said. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now this is a possibility that Jesus stops here because in his first coming, his first coming is when he's coming to bring this day of release. That this time period, this ushering in of coming to the oppressed, we know that there's a second coming as well where Jesus is vengeance, where God's judgment will be poured out on the earth. But we understand that that has not come yet. And so looking at this, I want us to just think about this. Jesus has come to the broken. And broken is a term that I'm using loosely to refer to many different things. Oppression, poorness, poverty. And I think there's a great example that we can find and mark the first chapter. And that's where we're going to go to. Let's go to Mark the first chapter. Mark 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 40. We're going to pick it up in verse 40. Jesus comes to this person that was under real oppression. Oppression of a disease that in this day and age was incurable. That nobody that had it probably had much hope at all. Verse 40. We read, now a leper came to him. This is Mark the first chapter, verse 40. A leper came to him imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. So here you have a man that's under oppression. Oppression of this disease and the implications of it is a life that's probably not very fun. A life that probably doesn't have a lot of hope. That probably brings a lot of depression, a lot of solitude. 
just to give you a little background, I've spoken on this before, but just to give you a little background of what it was like to have leprosy, there were some pretty strict and uh, strong implications of how you dealt with the leper as found in Leviticus 13th chapter. Someone who was leprous was someone who was ceremonially unclean. And they were cut off oftentimes from the city limits. As I already mentioned, this was a disease during this time that was not curable. Various diseases were out there that were similar to leprosy, but this one in particular was one that there was no cure for. All who came into physical contact with someone who had leprosy were themselves considered ceremonially unclean. And because of this, as a way to be a, as a cautionary, you had to wear certain clothing, certain type of dress, and you had to actually warn people when they possibly would come near you and yell things like, unclean, unclean, just to help protect people who may, might not understand or know what condition you were in, so they themselves were not deemed ceremonially unclean. This was a very serious disease that had significant implications. It affected everything in your life. This was probably something that really, if we can imagine what it would be like, this obviously was a ticket to be an outcast in society. I mean, I can't imagine what this would entail. I mean, leaving family and friends and being cut off from the people from the very temple of God, which during this time, that was, the, the, that was what made you feel like you were close to God. There were so many different things that were required of you, especially as a male, as well as a female during this time. But to be cut off from the very stipulations and probably feel like you were cut off from the covenant of God, which was very important. Of course, as you can imagine, this would also probably leave you as a li- in a lifetime of begging. I mean, think about this. I mean, we need to work to, to make ends meet, right? I mean, how many people is going to want to employ someone who is a leper? Probably not very many. Probably too risky. Even people who felt maybe sad or sorry for people in this condition probably wouldn't want to employ a leper. And so, therefore, automatically, you're probably going to be unemployed, and destitute to a life of begging. Going through garbage, going through dumps, things like that, just for food. Just to give you a little biblical history, the last person to be cured of this disease in the Bible was Naaman in the days of Elisha, which can be found in 2 Kings verse five or chapter 5. Rather. So let's just look at a few things here. Number one, the leper's faith and courage in verse 40 through 42. The leper, he understood his condition. He probably understood the scriptures. Who knows how long this individual had leprosy? Could have been a long time. Could have been a short time. Somehow he contracted it at some point in his life. But the leper, knowing the ramifications of a leper, and probably hearing about Jesus, because you can think about this, Jesus was different. We read the examples of Jesus And there's something about this guy that's different. People that had probably heard prophets come to town, or so-called prophets, people that came to town that probably said that they could heal people, people that came to town that probably said they were some special rabbi with some special knowledge, that probably happened frequently. Especially in a day and age where there was such shaky leadership. You know, there was no king. There There wasn't an official high priest, and there was the Sanhedrin, 
But this was probably a day and age where there was probably religious leaders coming around all the time. And oftentimes they would probably deny a person like this. But Jesus, he had gotten this reputation, this reputation of being an individual that didn't turn people away. And we see this all throughout the scriptures in the New Testament that Jesus, he does things that perplexes people. You know, he invites people who are young, you know, children, things like that, up to close encounters with Jesus, which probably leaders back then, they would probably give lip service to children. Oh, yeah, I love the children, but they probably wouldn't actually, you know, live that out and demonstrate that. You know, they probably put themselves up on that high horse, on that pedestal, that I'm this important teacher, and, you know, don't be disturbing me while I'm doing things. But Jesus, he took the time to go to the individuals that most of society had forgot about, including people like this individual, a leper. Look at the leper's faith, knowing the ramifications that could take place by going to this new popular you know, rabbi, as many people looked at Jesus. That was, that was an example of faith. I mean, this individual could have probably, you know, easily, by many other religious leaders, been turned down. And he probably didn't know any better that Jesus actually was going to do this, but there, somehow he, he got the courage and the faith to do so. In light of this leper's condition, this was a big leap of faith and courage. Now, the second thing we can notice from this example is Jesus' response of compassion and power. Jesus' response of compassion and power. No one knew the scriptures more than Jesus himself. Jesus knew the law frontwards and backwards. He was the embodiment of what the law was, what the word of God was. The scripture says that Jesus had compassion for this man and did not hesitate, but stretched out his hand and touched him and made him clean. This was an act of compassion. This right here, in many religious leaders' minds of the day, probably could have been something that they never would do, even if they had compassion, even if they felt bad, they would think to themselves, well, I'm going to learn, I'm going to lose my reputation. I mean, people are going to hear about this, and they're going to they're think I'm unclean. They're going to do, I mean, I, I'm not going to have any, you know, uh, notoriety anymore, or I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to lose influence. People are going to look at me as being this, you know, person who hangs out with lepers, something that the law, the Leviticus 13, strictly prohibits. The interesting thing is that Jesus, he didn't care about that. He looked at compassion. He did what the law embodied. When we read the Old Testament law, which is still completely enforced for us today, not because God cares about ceremonies and rituals and things like that, but because at the heart of the law of God is the character of God. And that is love. That is looking out for neighbor. That is compassion. We read those Old Testament laws in light of their context, in light of what the ultimate goal of those laws are. There are laws that are supposed to bring us in line with the character of God, which is love and compassion and mercifulness and grace, grace ourselves. Jesus' response demonstrates that compassion. Now, there are some strong ramifications of what Jesus did here that have some universal implications. We've already kind of 
gone over this a little bit, but number one, it showed the difference between the rabbis and Jesus himself. As many of the rabbis probably would never dream of actually doing what this individual did. Jesus. The second thing is that it showed the love and compassion and mercy of Jesus. It demonstrated that Jesus was serious when he said things in Luke, the fourth chapter that we just read in verses 18 and 19, that he came to the brokenhearted, that he came to the poor, that he came to the oppressed, that he came to the blind, that he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It shows that he was genuine and demonstrated. The third thing it shows, many of us have read this passage many, many times, it shows that Jesus truly came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now we oftentimes get hung up on that passage. And a lot of reasons because we've had to defend you know, the New Testament teaching, uh, the truth that God's law is not done away with, that God's law is eternal, that God's law has relevance to the Christian in the modern day, even after Jesus rose from the dead, that the, that the law of God has relevance in the New Testament covenant. But sometimes we get so wrapped up on that that sometimes we forget, and I'll just include myself, I won't put anyone else in that box, that Jesus, a part of that is fulfilling the totality of what's in there. And that is a Messiah, a Lord, a God that has come to the forgotten, to the downtrodden, to the oppressed. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 17 through 18, we've heard it many times. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And that includes the things that the prophets tell us, like in Isaiah. That includes the things that the prophets tell us, like in Jeremiah and Zechariah, about this Messiah coming. That this Messiah coming to bear our iniquities and our affirmities. Not just, of course, the things that we traditionally consider the law. So let's just think about this. Jesus, right here. Jesus does not seem to be, become leprous himself. In fact, there doesn't really seem to be any mention of Jesus is now ceremonially unclean. And oftentimes you can say, well, did Jesus break the law here? I don't think so, because I think that he embodied the spirit of the law. He embodied the spirit of the law, looking out and having compassion for his fellow man. But it's interesting that Isaiah 53, verse 4, says something very, very, very pertinent to the role in which Jesus plays in the New Testament. And that is, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus took the risk. He knew his mission was to go to get on human level and to get intimate with people's problems. To get down there with them and to help bear that with them. And then this is an example of him doing that. This is an example of him doing that. We can also compare this to Matthew the 8th chapter, verse 16 and 17, which says, when evening had come, and this is in reference to Jesus healing all those who were 
sick and demon-possessed. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And this right here, his dealing with this leprous man was an example of him doing that as well. Now obviously I picked this because I think that this has implications for much more than just leprosy much more than just physical diseases. I think it has implications that Jesus has compassion. We have a compassionate God. I struggled on how to conclude this message. I'll just kind of be honest with you. You know, there's a passage in the Psalms. Okay? Psalm 33, that says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I didn't write that down for you guys, and I apologize. But in this message, I want us to understand something. Something that I think we already understand, but I want to highlight it because I think it's such a relevant issue for the church today. A relevant issue for us as members of God's body. When we look at Jesus, when we look at his message, when we look at the way he carried himself, he had compassion. He wasn't this rich person that came and, you know, needed to be. Of course, we know that there's passages where he is the royal king and he is worthy of the worship and all people will fall down and worship him. But he didn't carry himself like he was above people. Like their problems weren't important. Like he was too busy to deal with those little things that they were dealing with. There's a passage in the, in the Bible. We've all heard of it before from John I believe chapter uh, 11 or, or 10 but it's the story of Lazarus right he dies and his sisters come to Jesus and seeing the pain that they must have the shortest scripture in the Bible says Jesus wept we have a savior that felt the pain that sometimes being in the human condition brings. Jesus wept. That's powerful. That's powerful. So in conclusion, I want us to think about this. How does this what does this imply for us as followers of Jesus? We just finished the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, there's a joyous time coming in God's kingdom. We know that. We know that one of the most happy, one of the most Longed after realities in all of the Bible is at the very end there in Revelation. Revelation, and I'll just find it real quick. Well, I'm using a different Bible, and I usually, I didn't write down this verse. But you guys all understand what I'm referring to. It's in actual Revelation, the 21st chapter. You don't have to turn there. But the very end is the reality that we long for. 
and verse 21, verse 3, it says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrows, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And we've all read that before. It's an important passage, and it's a reality that's eventually going to come, of course, at the very end, even after the millennium, even after the kingdom of God. I do want to close with one passage, though. It's in Matthew, the 11th chapter, verse 25. And I struggled because I think that this is such an issue that, I'll be honest with you, kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. But it's a reality I think that we cannot ignore as Christians because it's such a big deal. It's such a pertinent issue in our society. The issue of pain that people are dealing with. I'll have to kind of give a little due to Matt Steele on this. He probably didn't know that he influenced me picking this passage uh, in, a, in an area that he probably would never guess, but years ago he wrote, we have a little section on our website, it's kind of an underused section, we have a little, if you go to our website, TulsaChurchOfGod.net, at the very bottom you hit commentary, and there's some of us years ago that have put up different little writings, or will we just kind of maybe put, what you can, similar to like what a blog post would be, and Matt wrote in some something in there, and he wrote a little little excerpt uh, years ago, and I think he entitled it, Give Me Your Tired. And he was talking about a particular poem. He was talking about his immigration story a little bit. I think he alludes to it. And he talks about the idea of freedom. And talks about the idea of freedom, a borrowed concept. You know, many nations talked about this idea of freedom. You talk about Britain being a refuge where people could go to get freedom. And of course, the United States, the refuge where people can get freedom and live out what we call the American dream. But it's a borrowed concept. And that borrowed concept's from the Bible itself. And he reads and he, he quotes this passage in Matthew, the 11th chapter, verses 25 through 30. And I'm just going to close with this. It says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus says this in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.